So it is, uh, it is truly uh, an honor, um, a, a terrifying honor in a way, to be trusted with this sacred task to open and proclaim the Word of God before His people. And I, but I thank you for it. It is a privilege. Um, you know, this, this morning my, my daughter came up and she gave me her, her clock. She said, Daddy, I want you to have my clock while you preach. I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. She's like, that way you'll know that you're talking too long. So I went ahead and brought it, though, because she's probably right. Uh, so, um, But yes, as, as was mentioned, and as most of you know, uh, I am being prayerfully considered to uh, be appointed as an elder here at the church. And, you know, ultimately, the Spirit will will make that decision through the church. It is, uh, God, God will work through you to decide whether that is the case or not, and, and I rejoice whatever God's decision is. But, but today I have one, and maybe my only, opportunity to stand at the sacred desk and proclaim God's Word, and I can think of nothing that I would rather proclaim and nothing that it would be better for you to hear in considering and evaluating me for that possibility than to open up and just proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and just the heart of what it is that Jesus did and why. But even more than that, I mean, today is a day of celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ. Today, our dear sister Jessica was baptized as a public testimony of her identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his finished work on behalf of her soul. Today we also partook of communion, which Jesus specifically said for us to do in remembrance of him. It is something that we do repeatedly for the purpose, not of learning or gaining something new, but of remembering something central and important that we must never forget, must never let slip from our mind. What Jesus did in his broken body, his shed blood on the cross 2,000 years ago and his subsequent resurrection on our behalf. And so it is with, with, uh, with joy and, and it is a great privilege that I want to open up for you Galatians 4, 4 through 7, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to go ahead and, uh, and open up to that passage as we look and remember what it is that Jesus did and just celebrate that today. And so as you turn there, just a little bit of context, as we always need jumping into any passage, especially in the middle of a book. So the book of Galatians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches throughout the region of Galatia, somewhere that, tra that uh, Paul had traveled through and preached from town to town, proclaiming the gospel in the synagogues and in the streets to, the, to, uh, to Jews and Gentiles alike, and had largely had success among the Gentiles. Some of these Gentiles had previously been worshiping in synagogues and knew something of the Jewish scriptures and of Jewish tradition, knew the, of the God of Israel, and so there was a context for them to understand this gospel. But they heard Paul's preaching and they believed and they rejoiced that salvation had come to them as well as to the Jews. And, they, and so they, they gathered. Oftentimes they had to leave the synagogue and worship elsewhere, but he, they gathered into churches 
Paul eventually appointed leaders, and he left from town to town and finally went back to his home church. But the word began to come to Paul. He started to hear that since he had left, some trouble had started in these churches. Some teachers began to rise up and say, oh yes, Jesus, that's all good. Jesus died for you, yes. Jesus, the Son of God who died for your sins, of course, absolutely believe that. But if you want to stay right with, the, with, with our God, with the God of Israel, then what you need to do after that, after receiving Jesus as your Messiah, and after believing in his death, then you have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses as God's people have always done. So you need to follow this pattern of ritual laws and external ordinances that God gave us, and that's the way you stay holy and stay right in his presence. You, so it's Jesus plus this series of laws and rituals. And Paul was mortified on hearing this. And so he writes what is his most, perhaps his most fierce and impassioned letter of any of his letters. Paul normally speaks with such gentleness and grace, and yet as we read through Galatians, we come across phrases like, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But his anger is pouring out from his deep and abiding love, his desire to see them reconciled to God and remaining right with him and not led astray through these falsehoods. His love provoked him to very strong words with them. And he opens up his gospel from the very beginning saying, look, you know the gospel that you heard from me. And if anyone comes to you preaching any other gospel, even an angel from heaven appears to you preaching any other gospel, let them be accursed. This is the good news. He goes on in chapter 2 to demonstrate how all the other apostles the 12 whom Jesus appointed preached the very same gospel as him, and they preached this in unity, that it is one message throughout all the Christian church. And he comes to chapter 3, and he walks out this relationship between the Old Testament law, which is itself good, and which God gave for a purpose, but which was fulfilled in Christ and pointed to Christ, for Christ was bringing something greater. And so then we reach chapter 4, and Paul gives us this beautifully concise, yet deep and robust summary of what this one gospel message is, to which we can add nothing and take nothing away. And so, in Galatians chapter 4, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray as we then continue in this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word today, that you would speak to us through this passage, 
God, that your spirit would be on me and that anything that would come out of my mouth would accurately reflect your truth. God, I pray your spirit would be on everyone in this room to convict of sin, to bring joy at your grace, and to bring all of us closer to you. God, we devote this time as an offering to you. We love you in thanksgiving for everything that you have done. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, so let's just walk through this piece by piece as we see in this small passage just how much truth there is in this beautiful reality that we celebrate of what Jesus has done. So we see, but when the fullness of time had come, so all of history, everything that had happened had been building to this moment, and this was precisely the planned moment, all the law, all the prophets, all of our sin, all of our failings, everything was all coming together at the exact moment that since before the world began, God had intended this to happen. The fullness of time comes. There is no accident here. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, which is simply a term for becoming a man. You see this term used elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus speaks, for example, of uh, John the Baptist as among all those born of women. There is no greater prophet than John. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's simple term, uh, you know, uh, ancient Near Eastern terminology referring to the Son of God came forward and became a man, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So let's focus in here. He's born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. If time allowed, there is so much we could say just here about this one phrase. But for most of you in this room, this is probably the aspect of the gospel that you're most comfortable and familiar with. But it's so good to remember it again, that Jesus voluntarily came under the law, where we were under the law, to redeem us out of its weight, out of the judgment that we rightly deserved under the weight and burden of the law. So Paul's story begins, Paul's gospel begins with us imprisoned under the law, needing of redemption. Generally speaking, somebody who needed to be redeemed was someone in some form of slavery or bondage. So we are bound and enslaved, imprisoned under the law, needing someone to redeem us out. And Jesus does that by himself coming under that law, sharing in that burden with us. So why is the law a prison and a burden to us? Well, earlier in Galatians and throughout the New Testament, it's made clear that it is because of our sin. The law itself is pure and good and perfect, but because we have sinned, the law can do nothing but pronounce judgment on us. You see, and, and we all are com will comfortably say, yes, we've all sinned. Um, most of us could think of some verses that would make that clear. My children could recite, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We have no one living as righteous before you, Psalm 143.2. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. 
All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, Romans 3.9. And on and on the list would go. The Bible is clear. Every single one of us is guilty of sin. But sometimes we don't connect that to the law and God as judge and law giver. Sin is more than just a religious word for doing bad things. 1 John 3, 4 says that everyone who commits sin breaks the law because sin is the breaking of law. So, so what is sin? Sin is crime against our very maker. We are guilty of a cosmic felony against the Lord of the universe. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. And the law is very clear on this, that the one who disobeys God, the one who breaks his commandments, deserves swift and just death. And of course, Paul himself says, for the wages of sin is death. But as we'll see greatly, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to feel this helplessness. We need to really stop and think of ourselves as a man on death row, awaiting execution, one he knows he deserves, until we can grasp that position and really understand where our rightful place before a holy God is. The gospel can make no sense to us. If I think of myself as a basically good person who's just made some mistakes, I'm missing the entire point of why Jesus had to come. I am imprisoned under a law I have broken. And I deserve judgment. I deserve punishment. I deserve a swift and strict justice. But what did Jesus do? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged under a tree. This is what Paul has already established in Galatians 3. So when he speaks of Christ coming under the law to redeem those under the law, this is the context of what he's, he's already established he's talking about. Jesus came under the law and he lived a perfect sinless life. He himself did not deserve any punishment. He deserved only the rewards and the blessings of the law. But instead of those, he forsook all of that and stood in our place and became our curse. He served our sentence for our crime against the law of God. He redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse. Romans 8 says something similar, for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ stood in the flesh condemned and faced judgment and punishment to take that sin upon himself. What does Paul write elsewhere? That God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. And this is the beautiful exchange. Christ put himself in the place of our sin. 
He served our sentence and took our punishment. But then what about his perfect life and the blessing and reward that that deserved? That we receive. We become dressed in the righteousness of Christ so that just as God could look on Christ and see our sin and punish that sin in him, God can look on us, his people, those who have believed on him, and see the perfect righteousness of Christ that we have received by faith. And thus we receive a blessing and reward we do not deserve and are freed from a judgment we do deserve because Christ took that judgment on himself and blessed us with his righteousness. What else does Paul say? Galatians, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This was what was prophesied even previously, was foretold in Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ stood in our place. This was always the plan from the very beginning. This is what the prophets proclaimed. Where is our redemption? In his righteousness and in him standing in our place so that God, purely just, can rightly pour out his wrath and judgment on every sin that every believer has ever committed. And yet, we can also stand redeemed because Christ bears that punishment in our place. So as we reflect on these words, I want to read the words of some of the earliest Christians just after the time of the New Testament reflecting on these same truths that this has been the belief throughout time. And they say it better than I can. So here in a a document known as the Epistle to Diognetus written only a few decades after the, the close of the New Testament, we read, but when our unrighteousness was fulfilled, or at the fullness of time, And it had been made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment and death, were to be expected. Then the season arrived during which God had decided to reveal at last his goodness and power. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. 
He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessing that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Having demonstrated, therefore, in the former time the powerlessness of our nature to obtain life and having now revealed the Savior's power to save even the powerless, he willed that both, for both these reasons that we should believe on his goodness. Likewise, in a letter from the elders at the church at Rome to the church at Corinth, known as the, the book of First Clement, we read, And we too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified uh, by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom, or understanding, or godliness, or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning Almighty God has justified all men to whom we glory forever and ever. Amen. And notice how these believers can't talk about these things without erupting in doxology. Oh, the God who would do this for us. Oh, the greatness of his glory, this wondrous God who would do all and pour out his mercy on us by grace alone. And so we believe. So here we have the act of redemption. God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And again, so much more could be said. But this deals with our legal guilt. We stand justified before the judgment seat of God because God credits us with the perfect life of Jesus that we were unable to live while allowing Jesus to stand credited with our sin and take that punishment. It allows me on my court date before God to be pronounced not guilty. But there's so much more. There's so much more. You see, for when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God was not content merely to free us from our condemnation and the weight of the law and then send us on our way to go do better. God was not, that, that was not sufficient for him. God yearned to do something so much more spectacular. He adopted us. He made us his children. There is a, a common 
refrain throughout, of, throughout our culture. Most of us have heard it our whole life that, well, we're all God's children. We're all children. And different thing, people will try to draw different conclusions of what that means, but there's this sort of assumed reality that every single person on the face of the earth is by nature a child of God. But at the very heart of the gospel is that this isn't so but that God loves us so much that he seeks us out and adopts those who have no right to the household of God, adopts us and makes us his children so that we would become legitimate children of God through his gracious adoption. John wrote, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it, does not know, it did not know him. So there's a distinction between the children of God and the world here. But even more importantly, that we should be called the children of God is an expression of God's love. Now, if my wife were to get pregnant and have a child, and we were to say, that's my son, no one would say, oh, that's such a loving thing that he's your son. Well, no, just by nature, he is my son. Even if I were an awful person and hated him, he'd still be my son. Just by nature of his birth, he is my son. But for us to be children of God is, an, is this uh, immense expression of the love of the Father exactly because we are not by nature his children. The gospel is a message of adoption. John earlier wrote in his gospel, but to all who receive him, that is Jesus in context, so all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of flesh, nor of the will of man, uh, or sorry, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were not born by nature children of God, but he blessed us with the, with the opportunity to become children of God. And he did not say, earn it. If you're good enough, I'll adopt you as my child. That's not the way adoption works. He mercifully said to all who receive him, everyone who believes on his name, everyone who believes on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, just as our redemption was an act of grace by faith alone, all of Christ and nothing of us too. So is our adoption as sons of God. Elsewhere, Paul writes, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So this was done entirely in Christ and it's to the praise not of our merit and worthiness, but of his glorious grace that he would bestow this amazing privilege and honor on us that to all who believe we might be Adopted, adoption to himself as sons. And Paul again, elsewhere in Galatians, says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. 
As many of you know, most of you, uh, my wife and I are adoptive parents. Uh, we have two children and are working on a third adoption, and we traveled the world to bring them home into our family. People often ask why we do it. Not disrespectfully, not, oh, why would you adopt? But, but they're curious, what's our motivation? Why we adopt? And the fact of the matter is, it's this right here. It's what, what you are reading on this screen is that I have been shown an incomprehensible love that I as a spiritual orphan, condemned in my sin and unworthy to even receive a small blessing from God, un or unworthy to even be a slave in his household, if we think on the prodigal son story. But, but God has chosen to come and take me into his own home, not because of anything I did, not because I'm better than other people and he wants me more, purely on His grace, not of me, all to His glory, He has adopted me and become my Father. And I want to share that love in my imperfect, incomplete way, the love that has been shown to me, I want to show to other children of this world, motivated purely by what He has done for me. The gospel of adoption is what drives me to adopt. But when you adopt, you do learn things. You, do, you think about this more, that adoptive love is a love by grace alone. You don't line all the kids up in the orphanage and have them compete and see which one is, best, is, is the best kid and adopt that kid. I love my kids, and they're amazing, but they are not part of our family because they deserve it more than all the other kids that are out there still in orphanages. When you go in an orphanage and see the kids who didn't get adopted, you don't have to walk away going, oh, I wonder what they did. Um, it's, it, it's not about the child in, that, in the sense of their own worthiness. Every child is equally deserving or equally undeserving of being adopted. And so when my children were adopted, that was an act of grace alone by which I reached out because of the love that God had given me and drew these children into my household, and they cannot boast about that. They can't go out to all the other fatherless children and say, hey, I got a dad. He came out and got me because I'm better than you. No, 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 no. It is entirely grace. And that is the love that God has had for us, that he would reach out and adopt undeserving people, and as we come into his home, we should be grateful but never boastful. This is no grounds for arrogance. As I said earlier, the scriptures make a clear distinction between the world and the children of God. In fact, at some points in the New Testament, the, the, laundry, the line drawn is rather harsh, speaking of those who, those who have been adopted as children of God, and the rest of them are the children of the devil. Um, there, there, it's there's a strong line between those who have been adopted and those who have not, and yet we are absolutely never put in a place or given any permission by the truth of the gospel to think ourselves in any way better or more worthy of that adoptive love that God has bestowed on 
us. Instead, instead I just thank him. I just, I can't even express the gratitude I have that he would adopt me. I'm not an easy kid to raise. But my God is good. Our God is good. But even then, he has redeemed us from the guilt of our sin and brought us into his own household and made us children, become a father to us, and granted us a permanent place in his home. But even so, the grace of our God is so great that he was not finished yet. So the very next verse. And because you are sons... So we've received adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts because he has adopted us. Well, who is the spirit of his son? Well, it is the the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God. We see in in Romans 8, which is a passage that we'll reference a lot today because it has a ton of parallels with Galatians 4. Paul wrote very similar things, but earlier in Romans 8, Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now notice the language that is used here. The spirit is referred to as the spirit of God and then the spirit of Christ and then Christ dwelling in you, and then the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. Here we see the the, the connection, the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, that it is more than three separate beings who agree on a plan. But what we have here is that the spirit of God, God's very spirit, is the spirit of Christ. The spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. And what's more, if the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God dwells in you, Christ himself is dwelling in you. We have three distinct persons here, but one God, one being, one nature, so that these three are one. And this is the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who is God and Christ, comes and dwells in us. Because he has adopted us, God has put that Spirit in us. And when he comes and dwells in us, oh, oh. when he comes and dwells in us, 
This is an amazing thing. And so here, Romans 8 echoes exactly what we read in Galatians 4. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Very briefly, as we keep seeing that phrase in Paul's language here, the word Abba is the Aramaic word, the language that the Jews would have been speaking at the time, or many of them, uh, the Aramaic word for father. So really he says, by whom we cry, Father, Father. But he puts father in Aramaic, and he puts father in Greek. And the primary purpose he seems to be making in every context that Paul does this is to show the unity of God's people that this grace has been extended to the Jews, to the Greeks, to all. Jew, Gentile, people of every nation receive this same spirit and we cry out together as one family, Father. And so this is paired together. There's often a misnomer that the Aramaic word Abba is equivalent to the English word daddy. That's actually not true at all. Uh, it is more familial. It does imply an intimate family relationship, but grown men would refer to their dads as Abba. Like it's, it's not a, there's nothing immature about it. Um, and so it's, it's not a childlike term. And in fact, as we move on, we're going to see the emphasis is that we're not young children anymore. We are walking as heirs. Um, but... Uh, but so at any rate, Paul speaks of all God's people crying out together, Father, crying out to our Father, actually having a heart that desires our God as Father. Where did that come from? Well, that was by God's grace too. He gave that heart to us. He put his very spirit in us. God not only redeems and adopts us, and these by grace alone. He then places his own spirit within us so we can genuinely and truly call him Father. So, in Titus, Paul similarly says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, again, the drumbeat of this is that it's not about works. It's not about us and our own righteousness. It is a merciful act of God, but what else we see here is this language of regeneration and renewal. So when this spirit comes into us that makes us cry, Abba, Father, that makes us cry, that remakes us so that we, we do call out to God as our Father. It is renewing us. It is regenerating us. We are being recreated. We are becoming something new. We're actually going to come back to this passage because as we move through Galatians, there's going to be a further parallel. But here, we want to start by, by focusing on this. When the Spirit comes to us, it is to make us new. Well, to make us new how? Well, Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, Pastor Rich preached on this passage very thoroughly a few months ago. You can go on the website and look up the Ephesians series if you want to go really in-depth. There's a lot of meat here. But in brief, for our purposes today, we want to see that as you look through this, what does the Holy Spirit do when God sends us his Spirit? It strengthens and empowers us, grants us intimacy with Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that we have direct intimacy and connection with Christ himself. The Spirit causes us to love and unites us with the brethren so that we together can comprehend the incomprehensible love of God. It's absolutely transforming. And at every point of it, We can take no credit but only rejoice in thanksgiving for what God is doing in us. And so then, how does that flesh out in our character and our outward lives? Well, it was promised even in the Old Testament. God said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules or my commands. And so, obedience is not how we gain any standing with God. Obedience does not make us more worthy before God, and we don't have to, and obedience isn't what keeps us right with God. But instead, God redeeming us and adopting us and putting his spirit in our heart and joining us with his people through this process, he renews our character so that we want to do the right thing, not out of selfish motives of our own exaltation and elevating our own nature and trying to gain our own reward and our own status, but instead it is because God's own spirit is making us new and we yearn to please our Father. He's given us a heart that cries out, Father God. So, lastly, in our section here, um, Paul goes on to say, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So there are two parts to this final statement that we are no longer slaves and we are heirs. We have a new identity, a new status in life that has a negative and a positive side to the coin. Again, Romans 8 says a very similar thing that And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, emphasizing that once we have this adoption, 
If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So, we've become an heir, but an heir of what? And on what basis? And who are these heirs? So, coming back to a passage that we read earlier, I said, said back then there'd be more to say on it. So, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So our redemption our adoption and receiving the Spirit of God, making us new, we are then justified. We are justified by His grace so that we might become heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of eternal life with Christ. Paul elsewhere says, in, in a passage where he's revealing the mystery that was unknown before he came preaching, and he's making this known, revelation that Paul is giving. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Up to this point, the Jews, there were, there were different views, but some did believe that there would be Gentiles resurrected and having eternal life in the kingdom, but they would be second-class citizens to the Jews, God's people, who would, who would be the, 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 the top people in the kingdom of God. And Paul says, no. What I'm making known to you in the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So who are the heirs? All believers, no matter your background. And heirs of what? Of the promise in Christ Jesus. And what was that promise? As we saw, it's eternal life in his kingdom. Peter says similarly, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, we see what we are heirs of, but Peter keeps emphasizing this point. Who are the heirs? In the, in the ancient world, they would have assumed, well, the men more than the women. Well, no, when it comes to this promise, when it comes to being heirs in Christ, men, women, Jew, Gentile, all of us are co-heirs in Christ. Heirs together of this promise. Equal inheritors of this glorious kingdom. Likewise, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. All believers of all backgrounds, heirs in Christ, heirs of what? Of the kingdom, of eternal life, of the promise. This we are heirs of because God has adopted us into his household, made us his own. We are sons. We are heirs. We are inheritors of God's eternal kingdom. So, so that's the positive side. We are heirs. 
Now, on the negative side, we were slaves. We were slaves. Now we are something more. So what did Paul say earlier in this very context? Because in fact, this slavery issue is the very center of what Paul wants to say in Galatians 4. And so if we look right before the passage we've been reading, he says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul includes himself among those who were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. Well, what are those? Well, right after our passage, Paul continues, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, Paul does not include himself in that. He's speaking to the Gentiles who worshipped other gods. You were enslaved to those who are, by nature, uh, who are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how could you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? There's that phrase again. Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So what are these elementary principles of the world that Paul was enslaved to as a Pharisee and that the Galatians were enslaved to as pagans and that the Galatians were tempted to go back to by this teaching that you must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses to stay right with God? Well, he gives the example of days and months and seasons and years. It's this outward ritual life by which we think we make ourselves right with God, by which we think we maintain our rightness with God, that I have to do these things for my relationship with God. Paul writes on this same idea elsewhere into the Colossians. If with Christ you died to where it says the elemental spirits of the world, that's actually the same phrase Uh, for these principles of the world talked about earlier. Why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Everywhere around the world in any religion man has made, you will find people that their relationship to God, their connection to the Almighty is affected by what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, where you go, on what days. That there is this outward ritual life by which we must maintain our place before God. And if you do not do these rituals, then, the, then God or the gods or whoever it is that the person might be worshiping, because you find these exact same principles in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, or in the state religion where we dwell here. Where you, I mean, you can't get a temple, temple recommend if you drink a cup of coffee. Do not taste. Where our status, our ability to be right with God is dependent 
on this ritual life in which Paul is saying you were enslaved to that and Christ has freed you. And if you go back to the law, even the law that God himself gave to Moses, if you go back to that, you're actually going back to slavery. Slavery that God meant to deliver you from. So, Paul knows that the Galatians would raise a question, and he raises it and answers it. Why did God even give the law in the first place? I mean, the law has all these dietary restrictions, things you can't wear, days you have to do things. All the things that Paul is now saying are slavery. Why did God give the law? Well, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Just a verse later, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was given for a time to guide us to, even to imprison us for us to recognize the weight of our guilt and our need for that Redeemer. But ultimately, the law was not intended to be the, per- the permanent nature of our relationship with God. It was never intended for that. And for us to return to it when Christ has already fulfilled and done away with it would be like after the Emancipation Proclamation went out, someone ran to the field where the slaves were working and said, throw down your tools and come, you're free. And those men jumped up and celebrated, yes, we're not slaves anymore, we're free, and then turned around and picked their stuff up and kept taking their beatings and doing their work and living as slaves and at What are you doing? Why are you still living in slavery? You don't have to be here anymore. You don't have to do this anymore. Put it down and go. You are free. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir. So then having delivered us from the bondage of laws and ordinances in Christ, God has freed us to live as adopted sons rather than slaves and to act freely out of the love he has poured into our hearts through his own spirit, whom he gave us through his great and incomparable grace. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ died in my place and took my sins. And if I believe on him and trust completely, not in partially Jesus and then me and my works and my righteousness and my worthiness, but I recognize my unworthiness and cast myself at the foot of the cross, I am redeemed from the curse of the law and all its punishments. And clothed in Jesus' righteousness, I receive all the blessings of the law that I do not deserve. I am adopted as a child of God 
and promised to live forever in his household as a member of his family. Because of that, he gives me his spirit to make me new, that I will love him as my father and love his people as my family. And I will walk in his ways, not to earn anything, but to honor him. And then, as an heir, I live free. Free of the elementary principles of this world and in ritual externals trying to earn something that God has already given me. Barriers to my intimacy with him when the veil of the temple has been torn and by Christ's grace I can enter the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God without the intermediary of the law between me and him. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Well, first of all, if there's anyone here today who realizes that you have never, in fact, surrendered in complete faith and trusted wholly in what God has done entirely for you, if you've even just never understood the gospel, never heard this before, and you're realizing this for the first time, or if you've believed, okay, I think Jesus did some of these things, but you've still been saying, okay, Jesus got me started, but if I'm going to be right with God, I still have to do this and this and this, and it is through these things that I can be in fellowship with God. That I plead with you and urge you this day to turn turn from sin and turn from self-righteousness self-effort self-worthiness and to receive the complete and finished work of Christ he lived from conception till death a perfect life before the law and you can be clothed in that righteousness and stand justified before God He died your death. All of your sin can be paid for. Turn to him and believe. Approach him not with a bundle of your good works that you think help you, but lay it aside and come with the empty hand of faith. I've got nothing, God, but I receive what you give. Do not wait. Don't delay. But most of you here, I know and trust, are my brothers and sisters already. We have been adopted into this family. So what do we do? Well, the first part is to just rejoice. I mean, again, you notice how many of these verses that we would read where the biblical author couldn't finish writing these things without stopping to be like, oh, to the praise and glory of his grace. When we think about this, it should erupt in praise and worship and gratitude to such a God. There is no God like this. Search the religions of the world. There is no God like this who has come down, born the sins of his people, given a righteousness, adopted his sons. There is no God like this. Let us praise him. And every time we think on these things, let us 
Call us to praise anew. Let us be unable to speak the words of the gospel without glorifying God. For it's all of him and nothing of us. He is exalted. But what's more, let's live as son and heir, sons and heirs. And this is one of the things that uh, once we realize this truth, you realize who you are in Christ. On the one hand, you realize that there is nothing I could ever possibly do to add to this. There is nothing I could do to make this better or make myself better in the sight of God. But you also realize, I'm a son of God. That makes a difference. I can't just keep living like a slave when I'm free. My dad, as it, when I was a child, used to sit down and say to me frequently, before we would go out places, he would remind me, you know, Luke, you're a Wayne. You bear my name. You bear my father's name. When you go out into this world, you represent something more than yourself. We Waynes are a people of truth and a people of integrity. Don't break that. Don't shame your family. Live as a Wayne. It's who you are. You're not going to stop being a Wayne if you break it. I'm not going to kick you out of the house. You're not going to lose being my... You'll always be a Wayne. You'll always be my son. It's who you are. But I urge you, knowing that that's who you are, live like it. Live like one of us. That doesn't mean my dad and his dad were perfect, but there was a standard that our family strove to live up to, and my dad wanted me to understand that as his son bearing his name, that I should live that way. I didn't gain anything from it in the sense of my standing in the family. My, me and my brothers went through rebellious, wayward times, and my father did not disown us. He was right there with us. His love never left. My place in his household was never lost. But the fact that I was his son meant something. And it, 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 there, was a, there was an expectation of how I should live. And I think it's the same in the household of God. I don't have to live in fear and self-righteousness trying to hold on to my place as if God is ready to disown me the moment I mess up. But the fact that I bear the very name of God should urge me not to bear that name in vain, but to live in a way that would please and honor the loving Father who brought me into his home. A life of gratitude and humble submission to his authority just because he's God just because he's Father. And lastly, tell the world. I want a bigger family. Let's, let's go out and preach this message and see more adopted into this household. Let's love the lost enough to, to bring the message to them that brought us into this glorious grace. Because remember, you don't deserve it any more than they do. You're not better than them. And if you are sitting here redeemed, bring it to them too. Bring it to them too. And so, as we just remember these truths, 
Let us pray together. Let us, as that spirit dwells in us, cry out, Abba, Father, in gratitude and love to our God. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this gospel. I thank you for this truth. I thank you for who you are, the love you've bestowed on me and on my brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you for adopting me and making me your own. Thank you for redeeming me from my sin. Thank you for giving me your spirit. Father God, I love you only because you first loved me. Thank you, God. You are glorious and great and good, slow to anger and abounding in love. We are so grateful. God, we give ourselves to you and your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.